We're going to Isaiah chapter 53, and we'll read from verse 1. Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. The Apostle Peter tells the church how in the Old Testament... The Spirit of Christ in the prophets, that is, in prophets such as Isaiah and in such as this prophecy, how that the Spirit of Christ in the prophets testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And I'm sure that Peter had in mind such passages as this wonderful chapter 53 of Isaiah. I mentioned in my little introduction yesterday that it is the Everest of Christology in the Old Testament. 
It supplies not only a detailed foretelling of the events in Christ's life, the life of the Lord Jesus. It speaks of, of particular incidents, particular events, the times, the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as he approached the cross. But also in this chapter, because I'm not going to think too much about those events today, but in this chapter, we have a clear and explicit explanation presented to us for the reason for all that the Lord endured as our surety and in his office as mediator and in his role as redeemer. And what I want to stress for us in the context of the overview of this book of Isaiah is that here the prophets understood and presented and taught the hearers, the listeners, the readers of their own age what it was that they were to anticipate and expect and believe in concerning the Messiah. Here the explanation is provided. This is as fine an explanation, dare I say, of the meaning and purpose of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as is found in the Gospels and the epistles of Paul. Isaiah was behind no one in his appreciation of the significance of the work of Jesus Christ for his people. Now, I have said in the past that I believe it to be a good measure of a person's understanding of gospel doctrine, how they are able to speak about the cross. What they understand about what happened on the cross and what transpired during those three hours of darkness. It's key to knowing what a person believes if they have an understanding of what happened at the cross. And Isaiah tells us that God's righteous servant, that is the Messiah that these people looked forward to, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ and Messiah is just the same word in different languages. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah was bruised for our iniquities. And he tells us that by his stripes, we are healed. And he says that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here Isaiah was teaching his age, teaching the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers, and teaching all the generations that would follow, including us, because we look into the scriptures and we find the meaning of the Lord's death from this passage as we do from the New Testament. Here Isaiah was teaching these believers the spiritual purpose and meaning of Christ's suffering and death. Here, they and we 
learn that we have a substitute and a representative, a holy, spotless, obedient servant standing in the place of sinners, bearing their guilt, carrying their sin, enduring the punishment that they ought to have endured. And here we also learn about the imputation of sin from the guilty to the just and the transfer of righteousness from the Holy One to the sinner. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the essence of Christ's work upon the cross. And it was written with clarity, accuracy and honesty by Isaiah 700 years BC. Written to the remnant people. Written to them in their pre-exile days for their comfort and encouragement and help through all the problems and all the loss and all the sadness and the sorrow that they would experience. Written for their spiritual growth and edification and comfort. Written for them to believe that they might have faith in the Messiah that was yet to come. Let us move from Isaiah's writing forward to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and shortly thereafter. 750 years after Isaiah wrote these things, there was a man travelling in a chariot on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. That's a pretty tough road to travel right now. And here this man was travelling on that very same road, the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, and he was an Ethiopian. He was an important man. He was an important man in the court of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. And he had been to Jerusalem to worship. And as he journeyed in his chariot, he read the prophet Isaiah. He read the words that had been written so many hundreds of years before. And he read this very passage that we have just read together today. Acts chapter 8 and verse 32 tells us this. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. And when that Ethiopian man read this verse, when he came to this verse, he was puzzled. He was puzzled about who this verse was referring to. Well, the Lord would not have this Ethiopian remain ignorant. So he sent an evangelist. He sent a preacher. He sent Philip, the evangelist, to meet this man and as his chariot passed along that road from Jerusalem to Gaza, Philip ran at the side of the chariot and he called up to the man as he read, Do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him and asked of him 
Whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? And we read in verse 35 of chapter 8 of Acts. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same place and preached unto him Jesus. It's Jesus that's in this passage in Isaiah 53. And it's my intention that today we too discover or rediscover the Lord Jesus in this passage. And perhaps be reminded of what our Old Testament brothers and sisters knew and believed concerning the Messiah. And also, if the Lord will direct us to have occasion to thank him, that while very few today, as in Isaiah's day, seem interested in hearing, far less believing, this report of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant and his work of redemption, that the Lord has been gracious to open our eyes and our ears to believe his wonderful gospel, the gospel of free grace in Christ. So I've got three headings. Again, they're not evenly divided, so don't worry about the time. Three headings that I want to leave with you. I want us to think about Christ, the Messiah who suffers for our sin. Christ, who justifies our souls. And thirdly, Christ who intercedes for his church. So these three points, and just before I move into that, the first one, let me make this by way of perhaps introduction to, to all three. I want us to notice the particular attention that Isaiah gives to the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Saviour, the Messiah, with great humility came into the world as an insignificant, weak nobody, a little shoot in a dry ground. And the Lord lived a life of poverty, frailty and obscurity. He came as a servant under covenant obligation to God. And as such, as a servant was from start to finish, one who lived his life in perfect conformity to his father's will, well-pleasing to him who looks upon the heart. But for that humility, the Lord Jesus Christ was humiliated to men who look only on the outward appearances. There was nothing desirable to be found in him. Isaiah tells us he was despised and rejected of men throughout his whole life. Men and women saw no power in him, no benefit, no usefulness in him. What they saw was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, a man racked with pain and filled with sickness and disease, a man possessing no earthly advantage or outstanding qualities, a poor, pitiful, even a disconcerting person upon whom 
they were reluctant even to look. His appearance being so marred, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And I think that this is important because I think there's there's something quite profound in what Isaiah is saying here. I don't think it necessarily means that, that Jesus was outwardly in his in his um, complexion, that, that, that he was ugly or offensive to look at. But what Isaiah is stressing here is that there was something about the Lord Jesus Christ that caused people to recoil from him. And then the prophet explains why the servant appears as he does. His ugliness or the lack of beauty is not his own, it's ours. The distaste we feel looking at him is a reflection of our own corruption. All that we despised and rejected in him came from us. It was because our sin, our iniquity, our transgressions were laid on him that he appeared to be so mean, so awful, so repulsive. And this realisation lies at the heart of spiritual understanding. Unless we understand the corruption of our own heart, unless we are made to see the corruption of our own heart, until we discover the sickness in our soul, the source of all our sorrow, until we see what it is to be fallen in our nature, we will never see Christ properly. He will always be an offence to us until we understand that offensiveness is actually ours. We'll never discover our need of him and we'll never desire the accomplishments of his suffering and his death until we see ourselves as we really are. Now, we've already noted that Isaiah has introduced the subject here of representation and substitution. And it's as though he is saying to these Old Testament believers, the Messiah you are waiting for is not the conquering king that you imagine. He's a sacrificial lamb. And that lamb, though spotless in himself, is the one on whom all sin and guilt and iniquity and transgression and sickness and filth and grief and sorrow and all these abhorrent qualities of God's elect have to be laid. He says to his Old Testament readers, you're longing for a Messiah, but when you first see him, you're not going to like what you see. And this leads Isaiah to explain the spiritual and eternal nature of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do. So here are these three points then, and I'm going to move through them. The first one you'll remember was this, that Christ was the Messiah who suffers for our sin. And I think the power of 
Isaiah's language and the multiplicity of the expressions that he uses in this chapter to describe the work of Christ is really uh, quite amazing. Here he is viewing Christ's work as our representative and our substitute. And these two features are key to the proper understanding of the gospel. Preachers who advocate universal atonement and, and thereafter man's free will, they neither see Christ dying representatively for his church, nor substitutionally for our sins. They, they don't, that doesn't come into their understanding. When the Lord Jesus offered himself on the altar of God's wrath, he effectually accomplished redemption for his people. He reconciled them to God because he was there in their place. He was the lamb on the altar instead of them. He died in our stead. On the cross, Christ bore God's judgment against our sin. So that once it was paid for, it was paid forever and it was taken away. Now, the idea, the non-biblical, the unscriptural idea of universal atonement that the Lord Jesus Christ died for everyone without exception. Universal atonement demolishes the meaning of what Isaiah is telling the people here. Christ's redemption was real. He paid with precious blood the price of his purchased people's sin. No more, no less. He did not make salvation possible for everyone. He did not supply a provisional payment, a flexible open check, waiting to see how many would take up this supposed offer of salvation. Isaiah uses at least eight different concrete constructions to convey the truth of Christ's effectual redemption. Quickly, the Lord Jesus Christ, says Isaiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What does that say? It says that our griefs, our offences against God, our sorrows, our sin, our spiritual sickness was actually placed on Christ and carried by him. Secondly, he was wounded for our transgressions. What does that say? It says that the piercing and the bloodletting was for and in response to our breaches of God's holy law. Thirdly, he says he was bruised for our iniquities. The blows that he received in his body, whether it was from the soldiers, whether it was from the Pharisees, or those greater blows that he endured in his soul from the rod of God's wrath corresponded to the sins that we have committed. 
the chastisement or the chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was chastened. He was punished. The punishment that removed and satisfied and the the Bible word is propitiated God's wrath against us was laid directly upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute. Fifthly, to list a few examples, Isaiah says our iniquity was laid on him. Paul says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Where is Paul getting that theology? Well, I don't doubt from his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and his reading of Isaiah 53, just as Peter did. He carried our sin. It was imputed to him. And God's wrath really, justly, lawfully fell upon him because he was guilty in our place. For the transgression of the elect was he stricken, says Isaiah. Christ was struck by God on account of the sin of God's chosen people. Being no doubt, Isaiah believed in limited atonement. There is a correspondence, a correlation between the blows Christ received and the sins that he carried. One for one. One for one. Isaiah is saying the same thing over and over again, but the repetition is a reinforcement. It it, it emphasises with clarity. He says... His soul is an offering for sin. When Christ stood surety in the covenant of peace for the debts and obligations of his bride, he promised to pay to the last penny whatever was required to settle her account and pay her debts, to clear the offences that she had committed against God. And Christ's soul was offered. Christ's life was the ransom. Christ's blood was the price that was paid. And just to round off the eight that I've selected, he was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many. Two thieves were crucified with Christ, but Christ being numbered with the transgressors means Not those two thieves, but that he was representing his church as the head of his body and the husband of his bride when he died there on the cross. He bore the sins of many. Doesn't say he bore the sins of everyone. Those who would suggest such a thing are speaking contrary to the word of God. They are speaking contrary to the testimony. He bore the sins of many. But the many whose sins he bore were those that were committed into his care in the everlasting covenant and for whom he is substitute and surety. Let these clear statements from Isaiah reinforce our commitment to distinguishing grace and particular redemption. Let them reinforce our allegiance 
to the scriptural teaching of Christ's representative headship and substitutionary atonement, the very heart of the gospel and the heart of the covenant of grace. But not only did Isaiah and his generation understand Christ's representative and substitutionary work, but they also understood that their souls were justified as a result of that. And this is our second point. This is connected with what has gone before clearly because it's all part of the, the one passage and argument that Isaiah is presenting here. But Christ's representative work, his representation, was sufficient. It was accepted by God. His atonement accomplished its purpose. His blood was accepted in payment of our debt. It cleansed our sin. It purged our souls and it made us right with God. Listen, we insist, we insist on the success of Christ's work. Anything less is insufficient for our need. Anything less than a successful work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross won't do us any good. He did not fail to bring the many sons for whom he died to glory. He did not lose one that he died to save. Our gospel is chalk and cheese from the universal atonement and the claims of free willers who say that Christ died to make provision for everyone but actually didn't save anyone because something is yet required from man in order to effect the work. Our rightness with God, our righteousness in the sight of God was earned by the successful accomplishment of Christ's covenant obligations on the cross. Especially, says Isaiah, his bearing the iniquity of his people. It's that which is at the heart of our peace and reconciliation, our righteousness with God, our justification. By the Saviour's sacrifice... His work is fulfilled. By what he did on the cross, his work is fulfilled. It's a finished work. Therefore, under the terms of the covenant, under the terms of the covenant, the promised covenant blessings of righteousness and justification flow freely to Christ's people. Christ knew. Christ believed. Christ trusted his father to deliver the righteousness promised to the people purchased for the price paid. He entered into a deal. He entered into a contract. He made a contract, a covenant with his father. And having completed his part of the bargain, the Lord Jesus Christ believed and trusted that the Father would complete his and justify those for whom he had died 
Isaiah knew it. He wrote it down. And the Old Testament believers, the remnant people, believed it. And the Father did. All that was promised to Christ in the everlasting covenant upon the successful accomplishment of his task is certain and sure. God cannot lie. The Father says, I will divide him a portion with the great. And Christ shall have his reward. With those he has delivered, he shall share his reward. He redeemed and he justified us. And we, his bride, shall with our husband be granted all the blessings of glory as heirs and joint heirs together. And finally, here's my last point, and and with this I'm done. And it's not a big one. Christ the Messiah intercedes for his church. So Christ suffered for his church. Christ justified his church. And now thirdly, Christ intercedes for his church. Christ the Messiah did in his death intercede for us with God. As a representative, he mediated. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In his death, he mediated between God and man, and reconciled us to his Father. Now, in this sense, our intercession is as accomplished as our redemption, as our justification, as our sanctification. It's a finished work. However, there's a sweet addendum, a a, a sweet PS to... to, uh, uh, the, this 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 point as well. While we are once and forever reconciled to God by the death of the Son, yet the Holy Spirit would have us know, and he would have us know that the Lord Jesus Christ continues to repre- audibly Practically, day by day, in an ongoing way, he continues to represent his church and people in heaven as our advocate. And the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus Christ in his priestly office appearing in the presence of God for us. And Paul does so to encourage sinners like us who are aware of our own unworthiness, who are aware of our own sin, who fall daily, who sin daily, who grieve in our own souls daily because of the unworthiness of our flesh and the the, the sinfulness of our our being, who, who desire to go to the Lord for fresh reinforcements, fresh affirmations of his cleansing power. And so for our need, for our sake, the Apostle Paul tells us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace for mercy day by day. Because why? And this is the verse really that I'm emphasising. For he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And he is able to save to the uttermost 
all that come to God by him. He's speaking about the church. He's speaking about believers. He's speaking about those who come day by day, feeling the weight of our flesh and the unworthiness that it carries with us. The old man and the battles we fight and the troubles and the trials and the hardship that we face. Brothers and sisters, this is for you and me. This is the Lord encouraging us day by day. Isaiah has told us what Christ has done. It's done. It's a finished work. But the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, and dare I say Isaiah himself, tells the church, keep on coming. Keep on coming to the Saviour because he is an able intercessor for us day by day. Our Lord Jesus Christ knows all our needs. He has experienced all our sin. He has felt all our sicknesses. He knows our sorrow and our grief and our pain and he is able to sympathise and to comfort and to console and to encourage us in all our own troubles. He intercedes for us to alleviate and to lessen the sharpness of our trials and our suffering and our rebukes and, and our pain. Brothers and sisters, I'm finished, I'm done. Our blessings in Jesus Christ are farther reaching than we realize and far greater, I am sure, than we make use of daily for help and support. May the Lord teach us to trust him more and to ask for more day by day. Amen. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us.